Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. If my memory serves me right, only one AJC People of the Pod guest has ever run for president. And while he did so, one of Pete Buttigieg's refrains was, quote, it's time for Washington to work more like our best run cities and not the other way around. This week, AJC hosted the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, and the mayor of Fort Worth, Betsy Price, for a conversation about their leadership on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis, fighting anti-Semitism in their cities, and what it was like for them to travel to Israel with AJC. Though Garcetti is a Democrat and Price a Republican, they agree on so much and are able to talk productively through their disagreements. I think the conversation will help you feel better about America, and I know that it did for me. You can sign up to watch this and other AJC Zoom programming, all part of our Advocacy Anywhere series, by going to ajc.org slash advocacyanywhere. Now I'll hand the microphone over to my colleague Melanie Marin-Pell, who moderated the discussion. Thank you so much to both Mayor Price and Mayor Garcetti for joining us today. It's so nice to see you both here and looking well. First of all, just really grateful that you're giving us some of your time today. We know how incredibly busy both of you are and what the life of a mayor must be like, we can only imagine right now. So if you can, let's begin by just sharing a little bit about how the COVID-19 crisis has impacted your cities. Um, and Betsy, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Thank you for having us. It's great to see everybody. Melanie, it's great to see you after traveling with y'all. We had a great time and I'd go back in a heartbeat. Learned an incredible amount. And Mayor Garcetti, it's always fun to be on panels with you. He and I have done a lot of panels. Fort Worth has dealt with this. We've been fortunate for a city our size. We're about 900,000 people, a very young city. Our average age is 31 and yet we have a big population of retired folks also and very diverse demographics were 35% white, 36% Latino, and about 19% African-American. But we've been very lucky. Our numbers have not been near as high as some of the other Texas cities. We're a very spread out city, not a lot of public transportation. And when you're recruiting businesses, sometimes they want that density. Well, in this case, the lack of density has really helped us. We've got about 2,700 confirmed cases. And as of yesterday, about 88 deaths in the city. Um, the economic impact, I'm sure we're going to get into that later, but the economic impact on the city, the loss of sales tax, probably the downgrading of some of our property tax, is going to hit the city's budget. We're about a $1.4 billion budget, and we estimate this year alone will be about $70 million or more. Um, we've managed our budget very well. We're very conservative, fiscally responsible. So we're going to get through this, but long term, this is a three to five year hit for cities on their budget, particularly on tourism side and for small businesses. Thank you. And Mayor Garcetti. Well, good to see you, Melanie and Mayor Price. Always great to see you as well. Um, it's awesome to be with AJC and all of you. Thank you for making the time too. You know, I represent this small little city called Los Angeles. It's a global crossroads. It's a place in which we have folks who um, literally originate from every country in the world, speak every language. We're proud of that diversity and that sense of belonging that we all have. 
but it's also one in which we pulled from that value to uh, come together. Very proud Los Angeles for a dense urban setting in the metropolitan area of Los Angeles is the densest in the United States. But we've seen probably about a 20th impact of what we saw in New York City. We went very early uh, into taking uh, strong actions. But that said, we've still had for a state. So we have a high number of cases um, relative to the middle of the pack of America, but we've done extensive testing. So we're a little under 50,000 cases, about 2,000 deaths. Um, but we've also, we're the first big city in America to offer universal testing with or without symptoms in 38 testing centers. We just opened up the largest testing center in America yesterday at Dodger Stadium, which can do 6,000 tests a day. And we're very proud. I think Mayor Price would agree. Mayors have suddenly had to become health experts, and usually it's the state or the county that's in charge of that. Counties um, often have executives, but sometimes don't. So they're set up to do extraordinary work, but not necessarily always to make quick decisions or to stand up in crises. So we've had a state of emergency here. Uh, certainly use those powers to be able to stand up testing, help expand capacities in our hospitals. But all of our numbers have stabilized. And certainly I'd echo what Mayor Price said. We're seeing a devastating impact on states and cities and our budgets. We're also very fiscally conservative. Um, we haven't had a bond downgrading in this. We have the largest reserve fund in our history. That said, we're, we're facing huge cuts just to our basic services. So I hope that uh, Washington can continue to look at our local and state governments as key parts of our economy and helping stand up the fight to, to defeat the pandemic. And I'm interested to hear what this assistance would mean to you and your cities and what would the impact, what, what sorts of cuts are you facing? I know you've already uh, you've described the impact on the economies, but what sort of cuts would you be facing if you don't get some federal assistance? And Betsy, again, if you want to lead us off with that. Sure. In the first CARES Act, we got $156 million, and that money is restricted specifically for COVID-19 recovery and response. What we're facing most is we're not going to cut police and fire, public safety, our code. We're in good shape. I think the federal funds, I think this new HEROES Act, what the House passed appears to me, and when I talk to our Washington delegation, and like Eric, we talk to them probably daily. Sometimes they're tired of hearing from us, but they've got to understand those <laughs> on the front line. This HEROES Act appears to be a placeholder from the House. The Senate will take it up. What I'd love to see is them put a little more flexibility in where cities and counties can spend this. Some infrastructure funding, because we can create more jobs and replace jobs that are being lost with this as we go back in with new infrastructure projects continue to help us grow the economy. And we've got so many small businesses. It's estimated 20 to 25% of our small businesses need additional loan. The PPP funds weren't near enough to help them. We can't afford to lose all those entrepreneurs and startup businesses. And we need to be able to augment some of that funding for them. And I think the HEROES Act is gonna be a good start. I do expect it'll be scaled back significantly. And we have to continue to have the input that mayors are on the front line. And in Texas, the strange thing was cities of over 500,000 got direct funding from the federal government. And the rest of it for small cities went to the governor and the governor hasn't doled it out. So you've got cities that are sizable with major issues that haven't received any federal funds. And we're hoping this next T-Rose Act or the next iteration of whatever it is will help with that for smaller cities too. That's a great point. Yeah, a lot, a lot of cities were left behind. I was part of that negotiation the night of um, the CARE Act and it was only going to go through states. So I was glad that we got cities in there for 
Mayor Price and myself, I didn't cut it off at 500,000, but I think negotiations had to someplace. But if you're 498,000, you got zero, you got bump this. So um, it is certainly a help for us because we are, I'll give you an example. We're burning through about $3 million a day. 75% uh, that can be reimbursed, but $3 million a day just for testing in the city of Los Angeles uh, when our county or state or federal government should be paying for that or our insurance companies, quite frankly. Um, and that's where we need to get it towards uh, in the medium term. We will need direct assistance. I mean, $3.1 trillion is spent by state and local governments in, in the United States. About 1.7 of that is local government. Not all 1.7 trillion is gonna go away, but think about this like the PPP, which I agree with Mayor Price. We've gotta redesign for the small businesses who are not as well banked, how they can stand back up because it's a real threat to our local economies. So I'll return to that in a second. But they didn't say, hey, we're just gonna give you some money for your expenses during COVID-19. They said, here's working capital to restore what you do. They need to say, have that same business model for a local government as we did with businesses because we're huge employers too. We're, we're doing 10% uh, furloughs across the board to all of our non-critical city employees. That's a big hit on city services. And if it got worse, and it could get worse, um, we're not going to see tourism back anytime soon or in hotels full anytime soon, um, sports events with stadiums full of people anytime soon. But we might have to look at layoffs. And I know a lot of my colleagues, like in Ohio, where they depend uh, almost fully on income taxes, they're looking at like 70% cuts. So even if they can do it in a nuanced way that helps those who are in greatest need, I'd certainly stand up and say, here's my need. It might not be as much as others, although it's a lot. Maybe Betsy has even less than me, but another place has a lot. And on the business side, look, I think there's a real threat to kind of the, the small town capitalist system that we have right now. I really do. What will happen is, you know, if places go bankrupt, they're not going to disappear if they're big. Um, you know, Wall Street and capital will flow in and stand up the big corporations. You know, when you look at struggling neighborhoods or poor cities in particular, often women-owned businesses or businesses that immigrants have opened up in informal economy, uh, these places are not going to come back. And so one of the things we need to really say is this isn't just about saving big corporations, as important as they are as employers. It's really about getting business assistance to leaders like Mayor Price and myself, because we know where those small businesses are. I don't think Washington can find them even if you gave them three months. They can't design the system. And it's tough because they don't trust us with their money. So they're like, oh, local government will waste it. But if you put some restrictions on it and say, you go find your local businesses and give them that $10,000 to buy the PPE and to hire back the employees and clean up the shop, they might stand back up. But if we don't, these places are going to be shuttered for a long time. And this is going to be not a momentary depression, but a longer term one. We're two weeks and you're, you're just reopening and we're two weeks into restaurants being reopened. We're actually three weeks into reopening already, mm -hmm. but we're open at 25% first for restaurants. Now 50% for restaurants and small businesses. They can't make money. They can't survive with that. And that's yes. a message that Washington needs to hear specifically. I want to stick with the theme of Washington and transition it to looking at the universe of mayors, too. We have seen so much fractured partisan division in Washington. You are both members, which AJC is proud to have a partnership with the U.S. Conference, and it's through that partnership that we now send delegations of mayors to Israel every year through AJC Project Interchange. Again, you've both been to Israel with us, which we're really proud of that. I'm interested, though, in that collaboration among mayors, and, and if you could speak about the nature of bipartisanship among mayors and why it is not as um, fractured as it seems uh, in Washington. I'll tell you a story. When I, I hosted 
we're at the U.S. Conference of Mayors in Boston, a dinner just for mayors of big cities and with no agenda and no speeches. So there were like 30 of us. And um, next to me on my left was mayor of Cincinnati and next to him was the mayor of Miami. And they talked all night. They talked about the environment. They talked about immigration. They talked about uh, fiscal responsibility. And the other night, the mayor of, of uh, Miami said, oh, so you're a Republican to the mayor of Cincinnati. And he said, no, actually, I'm a Democrat like you. And the mayor of Miami said, no, actually, I'm a Republican. And it was one of those moments where they talked the whole night. They didn't, like most Americans, ask first, which cable show do you watch and what party are you? They agreed on immigration and, and being welcoming to people. The mayor of Miami, uh, Francis Suarez, is himself the child of Cuban immigrants. He's very pro-environment because he's right there on the front line of what climate change looks like. He's very pro-immigrants and immigration reform. And John Cranley is a great kind of pro-business Democrat who's helped stand up uh, the revitalization of neighborhoods and infrastructure. So mayors really do model this, not because it's something that we score political points for, but when I look at my constituents, I don't ask when they call it, are you Republican? Because I'm not going to fix your street if you are. Whereas in Washington, I think there's a filter for the front desk when a call comes in. Is this a Republican or Democratic call? And part of that is because we've been trained to only call Congress to either shout at them in a partisan way or to praise them in a partisan way. And I was pleased. It's, you know, a very difficult thing to fix in Washington. It's so embedded. And the culture of it is so rewarding to those who become the most partisan. And I don't know how we unwind that. But I was pleased to see Republicans voting for things like, here's cash payments in the midst of a crisis. And for Democrats to be talking about uh, some of the ways that we have to help small businesses out in this country. So I think, you know, more and more, we need to find those models, even on an election year like this, where it's tough. If we're going to get through this together as Americans, we have to stand up things that cut through this. In moments of crisis, whether it was the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War, we found more to agree on than to disagree on. But I'll tell you this, too. You know, I've had good interactions with many aspects of, with the administration during this crisis. I can also criticize them for all sorts of things I think they mishandled and continue to. But at the staff level, I, I know some really good people, and they've helped get things like the CARES Act support that Mayor Price and I got. But on Friday, I was attacked by the White House and by the Justice Department. The White House said, we're worried that there's too many cases and they're opening too fast. And the Justice Department, Civil Rights Division said, I was violating people's civil rights because on a news program, I said, we'll probably never be back to normal completely until there's a cure, which was just a truism. You know, there's gonna be certain things that we can't do. And they said, you're infringing on people's civil rights. So I called a friend at the White House and I said, you can't attack me for being too fast and too slow. And I don't, didn't see you attacking anybody who's Republican. So we all could find criticism in the way everything's being handled. This is a gray moment. I'm very proud, though, that here in Los Angeles, we serve everybody. And I'm sure Mayor Price does the same thing. She doesn't care if you're a Democrat come to City Hall. Uh, in fact, she, we see people before we see party. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of mayors. On a day-to-day -day basis, your police response, 911 doesn't care whether you're red or blue or whether you watch Fox or CNN. You want a police officer to show up. If your house is burning, you want a firefighter to come. Our job is to deliver those services. And city government is not partisan. Clearly, everybody knows which mayors lean a little right or lean a little left. But the best jobs in America in government are always, the decisions are always made in the middle. And you have to get to a compromise and you have to be able to work because your citizens expect that. They're not going to take no for an answer just because you're on the right or on the left. And public health issues, while I believe city government should never be partisan, and I do think 
like Eric, that's one of the biggest filings in Washington the last few years. The last 15 years, they've gotten more and more partisan, and it makes it really difficult for everybody to work with them and to get their answers. Uh, but I think public health issues, and we've said from the get-go that this is not a partisan issue. It must not be. Early on in this, I mentioned the big city mayors. The mayors in Texas, the top eight or nine of us talk. We were talking every day, and now we talk once or twice a week. And there's nine of us, and of that group, there's seven who are definite Democrats and two who are probably Republicans. But we all issued pretty much the same stay-at-home orders, pretty much had the response, had the issues over not enough testing, not enough PPE. How do we attack this and how do we serve our citizens? And I think that's why mayors lead in this country more than anyone else because they are on the front lines and you can't wait on a partisan decision to make things work. I was pleased that the first CARES Act was probably the most nonpartisan vote that both the House and the Senate had had. It looks like this next one, the HEROES Act, is not going to be as nonpartisan. But I thought that was a little bit step in the right direction, and I would love to see some of that hold in Washington. Likewise. So uh, one of the reasons why we bring mayors to Israel is to show off innovation. And we know that mayors are great innovators and you're always looking for good ideas and, and looking for ways to deliver the services and to meet the needs of your constituents in innovative, creative ways. And nothing breeds creativity like a crisis. So I'm interested to know uh, what are some of the innovations that you've employed in the midst of this crisis that have really helped your communities? You know, we've been able to do several very innovative things. And I do think the trip to Israel, because Israel's the most innovative nation around. And one of the things that we used is we made a contact when we were there with Zen City, which is an Israeli company that does software analysis and social media analysis. And early on in this pandemic, we called our friends at Zen City we've been working with, and they set up, they ran all the social media to see what the response was Twitter, Facebook, everything. It helped gave us a much better look at how our citizens were feeling, what they were saying when you can analyze that. That was a big, big help for us because childcare was closed down. We were able to set up a whole website network and help provide childcare for first responders. The model was so successful. It was set up in about nine days that the state adopted it. The state of Oklahoma and Louisiana are all using the same software now. But one of the things that I'm particularly proud of is our firefighters came to us and said, let us help with the testing. And they have pretty much run public testing for us. And they came up with a background as we've had an outbreak, I know Eric has too, with nursing homes. And they said, we will volunteer to do the testing of every nursing home employee and every nursing home patient. And so they've been doing three to 400 a day, and it's been so successful that the governor has now adopted it for other cities to use and mandated full nursing home care. You just have to get with your employees, get with your businesses, and think through things because they've got great ideas. I don't claim pride of ownership in any of those. I was just able to help get them implemented. Great. And Mayor Garcetti, you mentioned Dodger Stadium. That's a big one. Now, we have to, you have to be so creative in the midst of this because the suffering is so great. But, you know, we use Dodger Stadium and uh, firefighters to stand up testing centers. It's Los Angeles. So Sean Penn, the actor who founded a group called CORE, which had worked in Haiti and other places, suddenly said, how can we help here? 
And so we've got um, hundreds of volunteers that are staffing these 38 testing centers across Los Angeles County. We've been very proud to also stand up when the folks that were left behind or groups of folks that were left behind were immigrants in this. The legislation that moved forward in the CARES Act, if you're the U.S. citizen child of an undocumented immigrant, you don't get the $500 every other American child gets. If you're married to somebody who's an undocumented immigrant and you pay taxes and you're a U.S. citizen, you don't get the assistance. It's kind of crazy how many, I think probably in Texas with a high population of folks that are immigrants here in California, just in practical terms, people aren't leaving in a pandemic, they're gonna suffer. It's just practical assistance, let alone that they pay taxes and that we've not done anything on immigration reform in so many years, even though that, you know, led by George W. Bush at the time, 20 years ago, we had a consensus on this. It's been amazing to watch the foundations and the large corporations come together with us on private and public partnerships to help, just like Eric mentioned. I think we're seeing that, the generosity of Americans all over the nation, because we've certainly seen it here in Fort Worth too. So I think we have so much that we can learn about leadership, about resilience, about transparent communication, and about just good, responsible governance. Um, so we're so grateful to both of you for your time today and for giving us such a robust discussion. Thank you. You too, Molly. For several years, AJC has welcomed representatives from the Maimuna Association to AJC Global Forum. Maimuna is a nonprofit founded more than a decade ago by young Muslim students dedicated to preserving Jewish heritage and culture in Morocco. Over the years, Maimuna and AJC have put together the Moroccan Jewish University to introduce young Moroccan Muslims to the Jewish culture and Muslim-Jewish dialogue. Maimuna also has implemented Jewish Moroccan Heritage Days and other events to celebrate Jewish culture, and it has developed educational resources about Moroccan Jewish history for high school and graduate students. Elmedi Boudra is the founder and president of Maimuna and joins us now from Rabat. Elmedi, welcome to People of the Pod. Hi, Mania. Thank you for having me with you. No, thank you for being here. So first, Elmedi, tell our listeners what gave you the idea to create Maimuna back in 2007. You know, uh, Maimuna is a cultural Moroccan NGO created in 2007 by a group of young Moroccan Muslim students willing to promote and preserve the Moroccan Jewish heritage. Uh, the association was started at Lahore University in 2007 because we find there is a gap between the discourse of the old generation who talk with nostalgia about Moroccan Jews and the young generation who don't know nothing about Judaism and have all the stereotypes dealt with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm -hmm. The association Mimuna has since expanded his activities on a national level in order to engage in the education of the Moroccan youth about the Moroccan Jewish heritage. This awareness is particularly achieved through the Moroccan Jewish Days that we organize every year at campuses in Morocco. Like, moreover, like what we can say is like in Morocco, everywhere we can go, you will find that Judaism is part of the Moroccan national identity. Mm -hmm. And it's here in Morocco, we are really proud of the diversity of our identity. We don't see diversity as a threat, but we see it as an opportunity to build a better future in our country. You know, in Morocco, uh, before the independence of the country, we had like almost 300,000 Jews living in Morocco. It was the biggest and largest Jewish community in the Muslim world and the largest non-Ashkenazi Jewish community. But unfortunately, today we have only 3,000 Jews living in Morocco. It's a small community, but it's very active. And it's like 
remains the strongest Jewish community in the Arab countries. So now, Elmedi, some listeners may not realize that Maimuna actually refers to a Moroccan post-Passover tradition where Muslims and Jews quite literally break bread together because exactly. since Passover has ended, bread is back. And it's, a, it's quite a celebration. Um, why did this seem like an appropriate name for the association at the time? You know, the name Mimuna is a name full of meanings. It mm-hmm. symbolizes a common heritage of Moroccans. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, it's celebrated at the end of Passover. Mimuna is a traditional Jewish Moroccan celebration where Jewish families often invite their Muslim neighborhood, who are, among other things, bring bread to join the festivities. Mm-hmm. And in the nostalgia of our grandparents, it's something that they remember because you know, there is nothing more stronger than opening its door to your neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Then Mimuna symbolized the fraternity between Muslim and Jews here in Morocco. Okay. All right. And, and certainly opening the door and sharing food uh, makes exactly. a big difference. <laughs> um, now, you, you mentioned the Jewish history of Morocco before, uh, about 3,000. Go back to that. 3,000 Moroccan Jews now live in Morocco. Can you kind of give us the highlights of, of Moroccan Jewish history? I know it goes back centuries. You know, centuries. the Moroccan Jewish history is more than 2,000 years old. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had like a big Jewish community in Morocco, and everywhere we go in Morocco, we'll find a Jewish presence through synagogues, through cemeteries, through the memory of the absence of the people who left Morocco, and we miss them. And mm. this is like mm-hmm. where a lot of Moroccans, they miss their Jewish uh, friends and Jewish uh, like the compatriots who left Morocco during the 50s. Mm-hmm. As I told you, like there were like between 250,000 to 300,000 Jews living in Morocco. But between 1948, with the creation of the State of Israel, and 1967, thousands of Jews immigrated from Morocco, mainly to Israel, but France, Canada, United States, and in South America, Venezuela, and Brazil which made a decrease of the community here in Morocco. And today we have only less than 3,000 Jews living in Morocco, but they are very active and they have retained strong links with the 1 million Jewish diaspora, Moroccan Jewish diaspora in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then this small community is very active. It's mainly in Casablanca today, but also in Marrakesh, Rabat and Fez. And they like try to keep, uh, to do activities, to do events, to preserve their Judaism, to keep their synagogues and the cemeteries everywhere here in Morocco. So when you talk about protecting the Jewish heritage there, is that what you're talking about, preserving cemeteries, architecture, music? What about worship? Is that part of it as well? Exactly. There is two types of protecting the Jewish heritage in Morocco. There is the first type, who is done by mainly by the Moroccan state and within the Jewish community and the foundation for Moroccan Jewish heritage, is the preservation of the synagogues of the Jewish neighborhood of the cemeteries. This is have been done by the Moroccan government with the help of the Jewish community of Morocco, and they are keeping all cemeteries of Morocco. They restored all the cemeteries around the country and the many synagogues in Morocco. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the first part. Okay. But our work as civil society here in Morocco and Mimuna is like to keep and educate the Muslim about the Jewish past of Morocco and to keep the memory of the absence in like our country. Like and to say that Morocco, we are proud of our diversity and we see it as an opportunity to build a better future. 
in a way where we see the Jewish heritage as a component of the Moroccan Jewish heritage. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about education. Um, so I want to exactly. talk about a specific kind of education that Maimouna is trying to implement in the Moroccan school curriculum, and that is Holocaust education. Um, I'm curious, is that an unprecedented um, attempt? And, and you know, was the Holocaust not included in history classes there in Morocco before now? Unfortunately, as you know, uh, you know the history of Morocco is very strong, and uh, the unique bond between Muslim and Jews communities was highlighted during the Holocaust, when His Majesty Mohammed V said no to the Vichy regime. Mm-hmm. You know, Morocco was under the protectorate of two fascist regimes, the Spanish Franco regime in the north and the south, and the Vichy regime in the center of the country. Mm-hmm. And the Sultan Mohammed V said no to Vichy government when they wanted like to have all Moroccan Jews like going to, to, to camps. Moreover, Morocco opened its door to European Jewish refugees during the Second World War. Tangier, for example, was a heaven for European Jewish refugees. Mm. Like as I can say, for example, I will give you the family, the Richmond family who came from Hungary and settled in Tangiers from the late 30s to the 50s after they which they immigrated to Canada. But we have also many diplomats, mainly like the American diplomat Reeves Child, who had assisted 500 Jews coming from Hungary to enter to Morocco. Then Morocco was a safe haven for Moroccan Jews, but also for European Jews who fled Europe. Mm-hmm. Then this chapter of our history is very important. And we can see it in one of the speeches of His Majesty, like in when he sent a message to the Aladdin Project at the UNESCO in Paris, he say that the Holocaust is one of the darkest chapters of human history, then we should educate people about it. Mm-hmm. This message was in 2009, and it helped us, us as Mimuna to like use this message and to work and like organize the first conference about the Holocaust in the Arab world in partnership with an American organization called Kivonim at al University. Okay. This conference was the first conference on Holocaust remembrance in the Arab world, and we titled it Mohammed V Writers Among the Nation, mm. because we were educating Muslims about what happened during the Holocaust, but also we were educating that also some Muslims and Arabs saved Jews during the Holocaust. Right. This conference was a part of a larger movement of individual initiative of civil society, media, and educators to promote Holocaust education in Morocco. And since then, Mimuna continued to be active through many of its programs, conferences, but mainly had uh, arranged and created the first Holocaust curriculum in Arabic, which was created by Muslims for Muslims and tailored to an audience to support, to like to to educate people about the Holocaust, and it was with the support of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and with the work with of uh, Professor Omar Boom. You know the difference of this curriculum than other curriculums that you can find, is that our program is not a top-down approach, but it's a down-top approach, and it was created by Muslims to Muslims. So yes, if you could explain that down-to-top approach, what exactly do you mean by that? You know, uh, in our approach, we are, you know, an NGO from civil society. We are all young Moroccan Muslims. Our members are between 18 to 35 years old, Mm -hmm. and it was created by us, by the audience, by the people who are going to educate people about the Holocaust. We created this curriculum in Arabic, 
explaining the history about what, what happened in Europe, mainly, and what is anti-Semitism, what is like the different kinds of hate speech. But also we made it to our context and speaking about the region of North Africa in general mm -hmm. and about Morocco specifically uh, by bringing examples and using also words. Like, for example, if you, when you use some curriculums who are translated to Arabic, you have some Yiddish words like you, the, the word shetl. But a young man from the Arab world, he don't know what is shetl. He don't know stories coming from, from, uh, from Eastern Europe. In his context, it's something that didn't happen. And this is the danger and it can create some denial. But if we use some words like and stories from our region, like using the word souk, we use market in Arabic. It's something that will like make the young Moroccan Muslim more accepting this kind of stories and understand better what happened in, in the Holocaust during the, uh, the Second World War. Yeah. I'm curious what kind of feedback you got that led to revisions. What lessons have you learned so far? What we had learned so far is like we should give more attention to the local stories, to like things happened in Morocco and like to make less parts about what's happened elsewhere. Like we'll talk about what's happened mainly about Europe and about the camps. This is something that we should like concentrate on it. But we should give also more attention of some stories of what happened about the camps that were they were in in uh, in other parts in the North Africa and speak about those camps probably more because the young people want to know what happened and what is the relation between uh, the colonialists and the Jews and the Muslims in in Morocco like and how the relation between Jews and non-Jews during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier the late King Mohammed V. He really pushed back against the Vichy regime. And I'm curious, has there been a movement to nominate him and have him included as righteous among the nations? Of course. Uh, there is like many uh, uh, American Jewish organizations who uh, are trying to recognize him as like uh, uh, not a righteous among the nations because this is the Yad Vashem. Uh, who will decide, and uh, no one can decide uh, than the Yad Vashem about it. Right. But like uh, there is the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum who is trying to to make and like to study how Mohammed V helped help the Jews, uh, and this is very important recognition uh, because you know we need good we need heroes, and here in Morocco Mohammed V is a hero. He was the one who saved our country and gave us the independence. He was, the, he was the one who, like, make equal Muslim and Jews. For him, he didn't have only Muslims. He have Muslim and Jews, and they are all Moroccans. Then he didn't make any difference between Muslim and Jews in Morocco, which is very important. Mm -hmm. Then the young generation need heroes like him, so we can recognize ourselves on good actions. And uh, these good actions of Mohammed V are very symbolic to stop Holocaust denial in some parts of the world, of North Africa. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, this is fascinating, and I wish you so much luck in developing and revising this curriculum and, and having it incorporated into the Moroccan education system. It sounds like really important work um, that really is a model for the rest of the Arab world. Thank you so much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Lawrence Bolitan, our AJC Chicago director. 
Lawrence, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thanks, Sefi. Thank you for having me here, and good morning to everyone. This weekend, we observe Shavuot, which commemorates the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. And as we know, the Torah helps Jews to understand how to live a meaningful life. And this has actually been something that I've thought a lot about lately. As we've been required to stay indoors, away from the comfort that comes with being in person with loved ones, and having had to give up so many parts of our lives that I think I once deemed as important, it really does make me wonder what's really considered important and meaningful in my life. And as it turns out, it's not really those things that I may have considered meaningful probably three months ago. So I will get to answer your question in a second, but by way of background, my wife, daughter, and I are now having regular Shabbat dinners. And thanks to the magic of technology, we've been inviting others into our home virtually to share in this experience. We're finding ourselves more regularly going out on walks to see our friends. And while keeping a safe distance, we talk to them about life really in a more authentic and genuine way. I also find myself now unintentionally having conversations that I would have never dreamt of having with my four-year-old daughter at this stage in her life. A perfect example of this was actually a few weeks ago, as I was working on an op-ed that ended up getting published in Crane's Chicago Business Journal about some of the recent protests in Illinois. A few protesters had decided that it was appropriate to make comparisons between Illinois' Jewish governor to that of Hitler and the stay-at-home order to that of the Holocaust. My daughter saw that I was visually upset as I was trying to get my thoughts down on paper. She eventually came over to me and asked, only the way a little kid can, what was wrong? In that moment, I decided, I'm just going to go for it. And I explained to her that some people were holding some signs that were offensive and not nice to others. As any kid would do, she asked why. And then I answered her and she asked why again. And after a few rounds of this, it occurred to me that in her innocent mind, she just simply couldn't grasp why someone would do something like that on purpose to someone else. You see, Jewish values tell us to lead a life based on repairing the world, believing in social justice, and the act of loving kindness, to name a few. But we all know that these aren't just Jewish values. These are values maintained by so many decent people around the world, regardless of their religious beliefs. So as we observe Shavuot, let us all remember and reflect on those things that give us meaning and purpose in life. At a time when we read and hear about so many people dragging others down and finding their faults, we should really rise to the occasion by actively seeking out all that is right in the world. And that's why I'm so excited for AJC Chicago's annual meeting on June 25th, where we'll be highlighting a few community leaders as part of our Be a Mensch campaign for the extraordinary work being done by our neighbors and friends when it is most needed. So to answer your question, Sefi, on this Shabbat, I plan to spend time focusing on the many, many good people in our lives doing wonderful things to help others. I want my daughter to live in a home where we overcome hate with love, with compassion, and with strong morals. And I'm not going to get it right 100% of the time, because nobody does, but I'm grateful to be surrounded by those who will celebrate the wins with me while also confronting me when I'm in error. That is civility in action, and I think that's what we're going to talk about this Friday. But enough about me. Tell me about you. Thank you so much, Lawrence. Um, I'm curious, does your daughter subscribe to the wildlife magazine called Ranger Rick? I don't think she has any subscriptions at the moment. Lawrence, Sefi, did you when you were growing up? I did not either. Oh, my gosh. I read Newsweek as a child. Oh, wow. That doesn't surprise me one bit. Uh, well, <laughs> I subscribe to Ranger Rick um, and actually recently discovered my stash of faded magazines in a crate. 
my parents had saved every single copy from when I was growing up. So apparently I was a real fan. Well, my children are avid fans of Ranger Rick. Amazing animal facts often dominate our dinner conversations, and this Shabbat dinner will be no different. At our Shabbat table, we'll be discussing Hitler's alligator. (laughs) You and listeners might have seen the story late last week that Saturn, a Mississippi alligator, captured in 1936, died at the age of 84 in a Moscow zoo. The alligator had been sent to the Berlin Zoo, then lost his home there when it was bombed by Allied forces in 1943. It's unclear where he lived for three years, but British soldiers found him in 1946 and gave him to the Soviet Union. The myth was soon born that he had been part of Hitler's personal menagerie. But in his obituary, the zoo came to the defense of Saturn, who apparently was a star attraction for Russians and Germans alike. They noted that Saturn far exceeded the normal lifespan of his species and that, quote, animals are not involved in war and politics, and it is absurd to blame them for human sins. Poor Saturn, forever linked to one of history's notorious monsters. But that's just it. Urban legends, myths, fake news, such as the story that plagued Saturn, do have an enduring quality. They can far exceed the lifespan of actual facts, and they often proliferate to drive a point home. Hitler did not endeavor to save a chimpanzee. In this myth, he valued the life of a vicious, slimy, and ferocious reptile while murdering six million Jews. A believable story but probably not true. And while telling a story about an alligator with an unfortunate backstory doesn't do much harm, other myths and memes now circulating on social media do. Myths propagating anti-Semitism. Myths propagating just plain false information. They cause enduring damage. They're not just meaningless cartoons of laughing Jews or little white lies that we can roll our eyes at and shrug off. They're dangerous. Urban legends, conspiracy theories, and misinformation has consequences, and those consequences can endanger democracy and lives if they go unchecked. Now, did Saturn endanger lives or democracy? Only the zookeeper whose arm he tried to eat. Otherwise, no. His fictional past was a harmless story that burdened no one but poor Saturn. So, at our Shabbat table, we will whip out Ranger Rick and school ourselves on some amazing animal facts about alligators. We will talk about whether we would want an alligator as a pet, and we will invent a new story about Saturn, one in which he triumphs over evil and lives to tell the tale about a monster whose message had a sadly enduring quality that humans of goodwill continue to fight today. And that is what we will discuss at our Shabbat table this week. (laughs) Sefi, how about you? I had no idea that alligators could live that long. I wonder if Saturn was part turtle or something. Uh, Well, we will not be talking about reptiles uh, at my Shabbat table, at least uh, not intentionally. Who knows where the conversation may take us. But one thing I do think we'll be talking about, perhaps unsurprisingly for our listeners, is Israel. (laughs) And, uh, you know, your opinion of the new Israeli government may vary widely depending on your personal ideology, your theory of governance, or even just your opinion of Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm not here to change your mind about that, but I am interested in pointing out three pretty cool firsts um, in this government that I wanted to draw your attention to. While Israel has had an openly gay minister before, this is the first time it will have two. Amir Ohana and Itzik Shmuley couldn't be more different politically, but both are proud gay men who have been advocates for their community. Today, Ohana serves as the public security minister and Shmuley as the minister of labor. Pnina Tamano Shata is Israel's new Minister of Immigration and Absorption. She knows a thing or two about the subject because she herself is an immigrant. 
born in Ethiopia, Minister Tamanoshata came to Israel at age three as part of Operation Moses, the covert airlift of 7,000 Ethiopian Jews in 1984. Now she is the first Ethiopian Israeli to serve as a government minister. Of her new job, she says, quote, All Jews feel that Israel is home, even if they don't live here. We encourage everyone to move to Israel, but there is something important about feeling at home. We have to make sure they have a place to go. Finally, this government is the first to have a Haredi woman serving as a minister. The Haredi parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism, only allow men to run for Knesset. So Omer Yankelevich, a lawyer, educator, and social activist, joined Blue and White and ran with them. Now she is Israel's new diaspora affairs minister. Today, she tweeted out a beautiful message for the holiday of Shavuot, which, as Lawrence mentioned, begins tonight, Thursday, at sundown. On Shavuot, we celebrate the revelation at Sinai when the people of Israel got the Torah. In just 280 characters, Minister Yankalevich offered a beautiful Torah lesson appropriate for her new job overseeing Israel's relations with the Jewish communities around the world. It's with the words of her tweet that I want to close. It sounds better in Hebrew, my apologies, but I hope you'll forgive my English translation. Tonight, we celebrate receiving the Torah. The Torah says about waiting at Mount Sinai, quote, Israel camped there at the mountain. But the verb camped is singular. Why? We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Well, the 11th century rabbinic commentator Rashi explains, quote, they were as one person with one heart. We are able to receive the Torah only when we are united. Though we may live in different countries and we may have ideological differences between us, when it all comes down to it, we are one family. What a beautiful message from Minister Yankalevich as we head into Shavuot. Chag Sameach, everyone, and Shabbat Shalom. Chag Sameach. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.